Holy Madness is brought to you by JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Ich verstehe nicht. Welcome to Holy Madness. We're your co-hosts. Oh, okay, I'll go first. <laughs> Panzer. You have a first name? Too many. Fair enough. My name is Tzvi. For those of you that can't pronounce it, uh, you say the word heights. Okay, try this at home. It's perfectly safe. You say heights. Heights. And then you say the letter V. V. Now put them together. Heights V. Hi. And now you know how to say my name. Oh, that's, that's All great. right. I should we... do that for my name. Good luck figuring it out. <laughs> took me a while. So, we are going to kick off our maiden voyage with a game, a little quiz game, that we're going to call Animated or Anime? Animated. I'm going to present a scenario to my partner Panzer here, and he's going to have to guess if it is from a cartoon, that's the animated part, anime. or if it's the actual story in terms of our history here on Earth of how a society collapsed. An actual zombie apocalypse. That was not one of them. Oh. So, without further ado, hmm. animated or anime, kicking off, are you ready? Let's make it interesting. What's what's at stake here? I'll bet you beast chocolate. Hmm. Okay. Fair enough. The first one. A virus spreads all over the earth, which causes growths on humans before killing them, ending all of human achievement and beginning a dark age. Oh the ending gives it away. You must be talking about the Black Death. Correct. The Black Plague. Now, scenario two. A virus spreads all over the earth, causing growths on humans, ending human advancement, and ending in a dark age. Um, didn't we just do that? Maybe. Um, language of origin? No. <laughs> this one was animated. And it is a reference to the Rick and Morty episode, Rick Potion Number 9. I've never seen a Rick and Morty episode. Well, then you're not going to do well on this quiz. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Okay, here we go. A government collapses after financial meltdown resulting from currency manipulation, leading in which uh, ending up with the leader of the government committing suicide. I'm going to go with uh, that being reality. And you could not be more wrong. What? Yes, that is what happens in the Rick and Morty episode, the Rick Shank Redemption. Are you sure that's never actually happened, though? Yeah, I checked. <laughs> moving on. No. Moving on. Scenario number four. Okay. okay. The government collapses after a large invasion force successfully wears them down, pinning them in a small corner of their former territory. And ending with the leader committing suicide. 
that sounds a little bit like the end of Nazi Germany. It does. It does. That would have been an acceptable answer due to uh, how I worded it. But I was actually <laughs> going with the Mongol, the Mongol no. conquest of Jin Dynasty China. Uh, I wouldn't have... I'm, I'm not up on my Mongol conquest. Well, we all have uh, our challenges in life. Moving on. Okay. Scenario number five. The lower classes rise up to kill the ruling class, sparking a reign of terror that is only resolved by further killings of further ruling classes. I, you must be speaking of the French Revolution. I am. Very good. You are now two <laughs> well, for five. Okay. I, I, what this goes to show really is that reality is worse than the cartoons, I think. Well, wait for scenario number okay. six. Okay. It's a cartoon. The lower classes rise up to kill the ruling class, sparking a reign of terror only resolved by further killings of further ruling classes all in one night. All in one night. <laughs> that, that, that sounds like a cartoon. It is. <laughs> it is. Can you guess which cartoon? Uh, probably Rick and Morty, episode 1784. Yeah, there's only been 30 episodes so far. Uh, this is the episode titled, Who's Purging Now? Okay. Had you said The Hunger Games, even though it's not animated, okay. I would have possibly given you the point. As it is, you finished two and a half out of six. Not yeah. bad. I, I did better than that. No, you got the Black Plague. You got the French Revolution. Oh, that's true. We have to give you a point for the, the Hitler thing. Um, so that's actually three and a half out of six. Not bad. Not bad. Okay, well. Not bad at all. All righty. And on we go to... The next segment. But first, we'll be back oh, after right, these short commercial, commercial messages. messages. Today's world is full of distractions. Whether it's paying attention to what you're reading or achieving inner silence in your meditation, we all know the challenge of finding your peace and quiet in today's fast-paced world. But now, there's a solution. Introducing the latest in wearable technology, giving you the silence you need. Earplugs. Available at your local pharmacy. And we're back. My chocolate. I gave it to him. Three and he got more than half. It's fair. I did. I'm nothing if not fair. So today we were hit with a truly disturbing news item. This was published in Haaretz online. I'm not sure if it appeared in the print edition. And this was in a fairly long interview with an Arab-Israeli psychologist who does work with uh, people in Gaza, Gaza and also with uh, Syrian refugees in Greece, and I'm sure he has a, a regular practice inside of Israel too. And um, the, the story started with these truly disturbing revelations about sexual abuse in Gaza and the, the scope of abuse uh, within the family, especially. Um, and 
uh, it went from there. I'm actually, I'm going to skip over um, the initial sexual aspects of the story because I think that the, the, the depth of how disturbing it is actually emerges later in the story. So just to read a little bit. Um, so he says, there are no social conventions. And on top of that, there is tremendous despair. Everyone I meet there is in despair. I get into a taxi, and the driver talks to me about his feeling of despair, about how he's using tramadol. I enter a restaurant where I always dine. The waiters sit with me at the table and tell me about their despair. I visit a psychiatric hospital, and the psychiatrists and the psychologists immediately come and want to talk to me about their personal problems before we begin talking about professional matters. Everyone is in despair. They don't enjoy anything. He continues later. Everyone there is mentally unhealthy. When people are mentally unhealthy, the result can be serious psychiatric disorders. People with disorders who aren't treated, and they are not treated, are capable of everything. Then he responds to this idea that, on the one hand, it's a society in which, uh, a society which is extremely conservative, in which everything, many things, are, are forbidden. And he says, everything is permitted and everything is forbidden. I can do whatever I want, as long as people don't know what I'm doing. So it develops an ethos of hiding everything. And, and then he continues, People are constantly cursing one another, on the street, on the roads, in, I'm not quite sure how to say this, uh, Shujaya, uh, which is a neighborhood there. Yeah, it's the name there? of uh, Shujaya, I think. Shujaya? Something like that. <laughs> Today's adventure in foreigners pronounced place names. Oh, I should say the, the name of the psychologist is Mohammed uh, Mansour. Mohammed Mansour. So he, he continues here. He says, I saw a huge quarrel between Hamulo, the different clans, because someone put a bag of garbage next to the neighbor's door. The whole neighborhood was inflamed. I see it also in my work with the psychologists and the psychiatrists in the training courses I give. I'm stunned at how they behave toward one another. Let's say, if someone interrupts someone, or is late, they immediately erupt into vulgar language. With the children, it takes the form of fights. All the children in Gaza have wounds from the blows they give and receive. So... Before you get into that, I just want to stress... Please. This is an Israeli talking. Israeli Arab, yeah. Right, but he's he's used to life in Israel. So right, when he's yeah. talking about people acting um, rudely or screaming, <laughs> this is not your typical, uh, you know, just, you cut me at the line to Pottery Barn. Just, just pointing that he, out. He's living in a hot Middle Eastern culture already. Right. So, it, what, what's so jarring about this for me is, this has happened to me a few times throughout my life, where I read something or I experience something, meet somebody, and, and I realized that I was totally miscalibrated for the possibilities of humanity. That the, the depths to which people can sink are far worse than I imagined. And the scope for how thing, how bad things can get, is just is just much, much worse. 
and it, you know people are awfully resilient like it's on a biological level like until people die like they die slowly yeah and and the space of time the, the, the amount of time and the amount of suffering that can go from like it's bad to you know, well that's, just a, that's actually a very uh, powerful and accurate um, uh, a very powerful and accurate uh, example metaphor simile really because uh, firstly as, as you know in our tradition we have the pithy axiom that uh, a man is a small world and the world is one big man humanity is, is an organism uh, of itself and and the truth is what you're saying is true up to a point both for the individual who's let's say fighting a a long-term illness and it's also true for societies when it comes to resilience they're amazingly resilient for for ridiculously long stretches of time as long as they have hope mm. the minute they don't everything tends to crash very very quickly and very very concentratedly hmm it's interesting at one point in the article um, the interviewer suggests that the rampant sex and the concentration on having as much sex with as many people as possible that's going on in Gaza including family primarily family members um, that this comes out of pleasure seeking when in a you know a horrible circumstance and the Muhammad Mansur comes back and says I actually don't think it's about pleasure pleasure I think it's about release and about hope about life and vitality vitality feeling vitality it's interesting yeah. that vitality and release come together yeah they do one is generally uh, expressed in the other what I what I found interesting about that article is When you have a psychologist, this is a person whose perspective on what it means to be human is very rich. He's, you, you, you spend years upon years training, um, training for, you know, not even for, training in seeing the human mind in, in just about as many of its possible permutations as, as you can find and and for a psychologist of all people to walk out of a place saying everything is falling apart and and there's just this overwhelming dark despair that hangs over people is is a first of all it's a frightening thought and secondly, you have such a pervasive despair. Yeah, through the whole society, what he describes—you go into restaurants and the waiters sit down at his. And they're telling him this, 
I mean, I've 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 long maintained that that places have atmospheres. Different places evoke different feelings in sure. people. Sure. Now, that's an obvious statement. You know, if you go to nature, it has a certain soothing, beauty, awe-inspiring effect. Or even just a relaxing nature. effect. Right, but, you, you know, when people talk about going out to, to nature, that's what they're they're seeking. And they know that's where they'll find it. And, and, and obviously, if you sit on the, on a, you stand on a street in, in Manhattan or in Tokyo or in our country, it's Tel Aviv. And you have the hustle and bustle and the the rush, and you feel that, uh, you know. For me in New York, it's this this constant for the way when I stand there, you feel this this uh, frenetic energy of life. Everybody's rushing somewhere, mm. and they they have all these goals they're trying to accomplish. It's, it's very hard to relax in Manhattan, you know. Even even the meals, they're, they're power lunches. Mm-hmm. You know, what are we going to do while we're eating? Um, so, and, and there are places where you can walk out and, and you can just feel that the, the overwhelming thing is that time has passed us by. Certain areas in Europe, and I've, I've stood in old cities, thousands of years old, you know, and, 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 and the, the sense you get is that time has passed us by. But this is... You mean the city's past its prime? What do you mean? I mean that the people there are... They understand that they're no longer at the the cusp. They're not, they're not surfing the top of the wave mm. of time. They're kind of lagging behind. They get dragged along by the rest of the world, but they're not, they're not at the front lines of, of the enterprise of humanity. You know? It's also, I guess, vitality is a good way to put that. It doesn't feel very vital mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. But Gaza is not... I mean, Gaza has been occupied by humans since, uh, you know, five, five 6,000 years at least. So I don't mean it in that sense. But as, as far as the culture goes, the, the, the narrative of the people is very short. There's no, it's not the same sense of time has passed us by, our nation had its time in the sun, and now we've been surpassed. In the West, I mean, people talk about, you know, when, when did America peak? Or did America peak? This is a big uh, debate now. Um, if a friend of mine on Twitter actually put that up as a joke. And Bill Crystal picked up on it, and it sparked this whole, you know, how could you say America did peak? We're still, we're still at the top, and no, it's not true. We actually peaked, and and Crystal said, you know, America peaked in, in November sixth, nineteen forty four, which which is more telling of Bill Crystal than it is necessarily anything about America for that matter. But just the the what what seeing that article, you're talking about a. I guess the best way to put it is, if you're a person living your life in one of these cities, I was describing in Europe a minute ago, it doesn't have that same sense of vitality, you don't feel as, you know, nationally we're at the forefront of of the human enterprise, of what it means to be a human, and, 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 and that kind of stuff. So, okay, fine, you know, but you can have a nice life. You can enjoy yourself. 
you can even do something worthwhile. And to hear this expressed so pervasively, so just finally, mm. not that there's, it's one thing if, you know, a Frenchman says there's no hope for the French people. That's his maybe, but there might still be hope for me. And Pierre can still have a nice life. Mm-hmm. But over here, it comes across, this article comes across, um, and we should we should put a link to it on uh, on the uh, you know the, the the listing for the podcast um, for people to see it themselves. Uh, I'm just writing that down so I don't forget it. Um, but it's just it, it's like this overwhelming finality of nothing, not for us and not for me. It's striking. What you're saying now strikes me because you're pointing out that there's a dissociation between the personal possibilities and the possibilities for, I don't want to say nation because I don't think it's nation, but... The, we'll use the, the word collective. It's not, it's not just the collective. It's, and this is, I think this is really what you were saying. It's I can have a nice personal life versus I can participate in the project of humanity. I could, the project of humanity could have passed me by completely and I could still, you know, have a nice little, you know, live in my little suburban home and you know, consume the television I want to consume, make nice meals and things like that. And basically have checked out on the enterprise of humanity. And still have a very nice little, little life. I've lost the connection to the article now. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. There's, there's a middle step mm-hmm. between the individual and the all of humanity. And that is what today are nation states. Um, or just nations or just states, depending which, which one you're, you're in or from. Not every nation has a state. Not every state is necessarily a ethnic creation. You and I were born in a, in a country that has no has no ethnicity at all. Uh, in fact, that was its reason for being created. A state without a nation. Right. And uh, but but it it does well, serve the, you know, one nation under God. It's actually it says something deep about the American. Well, listen, I, I, uh, I think it was David Goldman who, who says that there are only two peoples in history who have been chosen. Ah. One was chosen by God, that's the Jews, and one was chosen by themselves, and that's, and that's the, the Americans. Americans. They were self-selected. And, and Lincoln alluded to this when he, he called America an almost chosen nation. It's a very powerful way to word it big fan of Lincoln's. Um, he brought this up at the book release where we were at, right? Yes, he did. Yeah. He mentioned it as part of his remarks. Tzvi and I merited to go to the book release for the Hebrew translation of How Civilizations Die and Why Islam is Dying Too. And, and he, yeah, he, he, he mentioned it there. But there is this middle ground between 
you know, all of humanity and you. And that's the section, uh, grouping, um, I'm not sure what word really to use. There is a genetic component in terms of it being familial. Um, there's a cultural component in terms of, well, families tend to develop cultures and, and things like that. You're but, saying that for the individual to be a part of humanity, they have to be part of a collective of some sort. Well, yes and no. The thing is, what it means to be human is driven by these collectives. The, the... Is that because of biology? Because... I don't know. The projection of self through genetics? I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure, but I I do know that if if you're an outsider looking at human history, then you have these. The story really is you have a dominant culture, or sometimes more than one dominant culture in areas of the world, and their vision of what it means to be a human, what it, what what is mm-hmm. what is the best human. Mm-hmm is what becomes dominant and that gets diffused into other uh, countries and other cultures and other societies and and parts of it are incorporated and parts of it are thrown out and eventually that civilization crumbles and and another one takes its place and and on and on goes the thing the idea of a global definition to to morality and ethics and the human enterprise as a whole was very recent very recent, up until, I'd say, you know, you can peg it either at World War II or even the end of the Cold War. It was a national thing. <clears throat> the um, the French had their answers, and the, the British had theirs. Well, it, you have an interesting development in that direction with Hegel, right? Okay. So you have... Hegel sees the rises of civilizations and then the subsequent civilizations subsuming the previous one. Mm -hmm. And it seems that the paradigm he must be working with is how Rome subsumes Greece. Okay. Adopts the aesthetics, even the language of Greece Mm -hmm. among the elite of Rome and, and carries it forward in... A, in a new way um, but once you once you make that step to okay our empire isn't starting as a blank slate but we're going to incorporate what came before uh, mm-hmm. then, then once there's a progress through civilizations then you're stepping toward this idea of some universal Sure, and in some way we've gotten there, as as a you know as well, a speak totality. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. Well, if I was speaking for myself, I wouldn't say that. But but in terms of the story of humanity, the narrative, the the story of history, you know, that's that's kind of how most people, if not all people, at this point see it. But I don't think that we. Because context is so important, most uh, I've come to understand 
the best way to to understand culture is that it's a con it's a contextual framework for understanding reality, and they only work as long as they explain things to the people who are in them. We have many examples of cultures that died without the people who were part of them dying. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And we have many examples of where people died and their culture stayed on long past. Fascinating. So, but, but I think that the human on some level is kind of, or whether this is definitive or it's just we haven't gotten past it yet, but the human has this middle ground between individual and the ultimate collective of humanity, and that is that of people or nation or society at large. Um, and, and the truth is that the way this plays out is in terms of order, in terms of what exactly what we're really discussing the lack of mm. in this article. The disintegration of order. There's nothing holding all these people together. Every man for himself. And they have nothing left to believe in. Those things go together. Yeah. Um, how civilizations die. That is ultimately how they break down. If you have no... Oh, I picked up this article from Goldman, I think. He posted it on Facebook. Very possible. Yeah. I, uh, I saw it. Who sent it to me? I did. You sent it to me. That's right. <laughs> you did. I think that's the second time I've done that today. Um, but, uh, but that was my over, overwhelming, uh, you know, immediate response to this article that this is what's, what's breaking down. I shared this with a lot of my friends, including you, because I had forgotten you had sent it to me. And it was that good. It was, it was. And, and I had sent it actually to, to, um, one of my wife's cousins, Who's Israeli, born here, raised here. She's left the country, I think, like twice, you know, for vacation. Which cousin is this? Uh, Shira, you've met her. Oh, yeah, she was great. And uh, so I sent it to her, and her immediate response was, you know, isn't there something we could do? And I said, no. No, that's the point. Right. I, and I said, what do you mean? I mean, we could, we could ease... We can make life better there. I mean, if we ease let more blockade. things in, ease the blockade a little bit. Well, let's be perfectly frank. It's not so much that there's a blockade as much as there's a sophisticated check to make sure there's no weapons coming in. <laughs> but, but, uh, um, but yeah, it is. It is. Uh, uh, it certainly affects uh, availability of goods and other things like that. And so that was her first reaction. I said, well, "Why would that necessarily help?" I found it interesting that this, this, you know, I'm, I'm the American in this conversation. And Americans tend to believe that the more goods, the better life is. Sure, it's not exactly a, a bleeding heart liberal. That's true as well. But I just found it interesting that she, she had a consumerist answer to the issue. Um, oh, that's true too. Mm -hmm. But I said, I don't think that would really help. If you opened up you know, 100,000 malls, 100,000 department stores in each one, and you were able to buy everything for a penny, and that wouldn't mean somebody wouldn't rob it the next minute, mm -hmm. or that somebody wouldn't break into your home to take yours if they didn't have a penny to buy what they wanted. The respect for the rule of law comes from this sense of we're all in something together. And maybe nations are nothing but practice for the ultimate, you know, all of humanity uh, as one, 
I don't think it's true, but let's say it is. Maybe. Who knows? So we could sing Imagine around the campfire and it'll be fantastic. But... Can we do Kumbaya too? Well, they go together. Oh. Yeah. There's uh, Imagine and Kumbaya. There's there's another one. Isn't there? It's It'll a come small to me. world after... No. Oh, okay. Now you're going on the Epcot Center playlist. Um, that's part of the Magic Kingdom. Really? That was Epcot. I've never been there. But but uh, this this breakdown is is pervasive enough. And this is this is something I don't I don't remember if he mentions, but it's worth pointing out that it precludes having a good little life. Hmm. It's interesting. You yeah. could have a good yeah. little life even if you don't have much hope in your country's future. But you can't have a good little life if you don't have a society at all. Order breaks down to an extent where a good little life becomes impossible. Yeah. I have to tell you, we should close out this segment. This just, in terms of what you were saying about how culture puts forth an ideal. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it was about a year ago now. Uh, there was this amazing exhibition in the Israel Museum. Mm -hmm. uh, Paro Bukhanan, Pharaoh and, and Canaan. And it was about the interrelationship between Egypt and Canaan, the many different kingdoms functioning in this area uh, during approximately the period from before Yoshua would have entered the land and then running forward for a while after that. Um, the thing that really struck me in the exhibition was the jewelry from that period. Mm -hmm. Because I walked to this exhibition and I came to this ancient Egyptian jewelry and it was so fresh. It could have been avant-garde jewelry out of the nicest most cutting-edge shops today. And I'm looking at this going. I'm looking into a different world. And what I realized at that moment was also that beauty today is Italian beauty. Beauty was literally defined by the Italian Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And... I, I, it's, I'm not being an anti-realist about beauty. I'm not saying it's merely some social construction. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that it's, that there is a reality to this, but it's, um, it's like, uh, we were saying Torah Mishpat, right? Where it's, it's this thing that's real and it's human defined. And, and the definition we have of beauty comes directly from the Italian Renaissance. And when I was looking at this, you know, it's not like when you look at Roman art or Greek art, and when we look at that art today, we see it as predecessors for the Italian what Renaissance and what right. it became for us. I don't think we really see it the way they saw it then. Well, to show, to show you how much we don't see it the way they did, Roman buildings that you know are recreated essentially in Washington, D.C., didn't look like the buildings in DC. They were painted bright colors. 
Can you imagine that? (laughs) Go do that to Washington, D.C. and see how people respond to it. Right. There's a completely different aesthetic that we we have lost touch with, and we only sense it for how it feeds into our aesthetic. And when I was looking back into ancient Egypt, which really did profoundly influence the Greeks, but it's at such a remove, I I was just looking into a different kind of beauty, a different kind of world, and something that, like we can almost see like re-emerging today in contemporary design, but it looks contemporary because it's so different than what we have. Wow. I'll just add one last point. Kind of touches on a few of the uh, points that, that we've, we've uncovered and and what we were talking about, and it's not something you don't know, but it's something our uh, some of our listeners might be uh, intrigued by. Oh, about how my beautiful wife is Italian. Well, that. But actually, you had brought up Joshua. We had brought up uh, the how hope is so tied into the human's need, uh, ability to function. We brought up vitality. And there's one story in the Bible, a story of our people, that actually brings all these things together as a given. When, when Joshua is camped on the other end of the Jordan, and he's making his military prep to invade, he does something very strange, considering how well it worked out the first time. He sends spies. <laughs> but they don't go through the whole land at all. This time he only sends two. Right. Maybe. He sends two instead of twelve, and, and they go on a very uh, short reconnaissance mission. They go to Jericho, and they wind up in the local whorehouse. And but it's funny, also, because the name for whore, right? This is brought down the... The uh, explanations for the text. She's a Ishazona, which could mean that she's a whore, and it could also mean that she's a, um, like she runs the supermarket. She provides the mazon. Right. Right. So, very quickly, they come to her, and she basically tells them listen, you don't have anything to worry about. Because everyone's deflated. Mm -hmm. And the way she says it, you can understand it both ways, the same way that I'm saying it in English, and you can understand it both ways. There's an emotional component, and there's a vitality component. People were very deflated. Mm -hmm. She would know. She's the one who would see them inflated. And this was enough that these spies turned around, went back to the camp, and said, Listen, guys... It's ours. It's ours. There's, there, there, there's, we, we, they're not going to mount any real kind of defense, because they feel as if there's nothing left to defend, is the point. And and that, um, in terms of uh, all you armchair pundits, Monday morning quarterback style. But those people don't listen to us. Well, you never know where this will get to. Oh, okay. Um, but the next time you hear one of them, you guys should listen to us. 
Right. <laughs> uh, well, no, you shouldn't listen to us. You should think things through for yourself. Um, I'm not sure we've actually said anything that would be something you would listen to in that sense. Is more as just give a bigger idea of what there is to think about. But the next time you hear one of these, you know, armchair analyst uh, types, you know, the guy who's uh, on Twitter is a foreign policy analyst and in real life owns a car wash, you know, one of those types. And they go through all this stuff. You can realize that there's a lot more that meets the eye than um, what goes into these kind of analyses. And and in reading this kind of article, which goes through um, really the depths of this kind of belief in this story, this kind of belief in, in, in a people, in your people, our people, whoever the, the person is talking, um, winds up explaining a lot more in, ter in terms of history, in terms of events, than uh, just about anything else. And so we're going to wrap this segment up. You know what happens to Rachav, to the whore of Jericho, after the city's conquered? She marries the leader of the Jews. She marries Joshua. She marries Joshua, that's right. She does. They do not have children. Though. They do. Girls. Girls, yes. Um, that's correct. They're girls. They do have children. Yeah. Jeremiah comes from them. Ultimately, yes. Yes, he does. So, we're going to wrap up our segment here, and we will pick back up shortly. And uh, in going with the general whimsical nature of the show, we'll be back after some more commercial, commercial messages. messages. Hi, my name is Lester Bagley, and I'm the owner and sole proprietor of Bagley's VCR Repair. We have over 70 years of experience in VCR repair. I've never met a VCR I can't fix. Lately, I've never met a VCR. If you have a VCR, I can fix it. I can even lend you VHS cassettes afterwards. Please let me fix your VCR. My kids are hungry. And we're back. We were just discussing the article out of ours, the interview with the um, with psychologist, his experiences, Muhammad Mansour, his experiences in Gaza, the breakdown of society there. Um, and I wanted to kind of pivot uh, to something not related. It's really just another aspect of the same point. And if there's one news issue that is ubiquitous is literally everywhere it's the infamous ip question it's the conflict between the israelis and the palestinians i i i don't think i've met anyone who would say i don't have an opinion on that everyone has an opinion on it to the point where you know you and i full disclosure you and i live in jerusalem we've we've been through Quite a quite a bit. Well, I'm not sure the UN thinks that I live in Jerusalem. That is, no, they'd say Jerusalem. They just wouldn't say Israel. Well, your side of the mountain is Jerusalem. My side, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think it I, is. I live in Jerusalem. 
but uh, I, I think I think it is. But regardless, we've we've been through a lot, and and one of the one of the more um, surreal points that that you know I've I've experienced besides you know living somewhere where these these kind of things take place is that on social media it's almost like a sports game mm-hmm. people are rooting for their team mm-hmm. yeah. but no one actually cares in terms of what's really going on it's just you know this knee jerk reaction of i am a a moral well thought person and therefore i believe this to the point where the vast majority of these social media uh, uh, fans don't actually the, the the things that they they that they're act you know that the, 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 these activists and these uh, uh, you know the people who are writing in their posts uh, you know I hope they all die whichever side they're talking about no one here thinks this way. It's it's gotten to a point where I mean imagine you know I, I don't know the Yankees play the Red Sox you know or if if you're listening to this in Europe uh, uh, you know Manchester United plays Manchester City. Did I tell you about my friend Abu Mazen? No, no, you have not. So I, I sometimes work in the synagogue in um, the the hospital. There was a hospital. Um, on, uh, in Old Katamon. And uh, there's a janitor there who's a really nice guy. Really huge guy. Really nice. Always has a huge smile on his face. And uh, so I struck up a conversation with him when I was first working there. And uh, yeah, his name is Abu Mazen. Um, he lives in Jerusalem. Uh, Israeli, Arab, Muslim. And uh, yeah, talking nice nothing conversation and then I, I didn't go there for several months to work and I went back and uh, I walk in and he sees me right away and he says oh my friend it's so good to see you again I go hey it's great to see you and I shake his hand and he says do you remember what my name is I said of course you're Abu Mazen there's the good Abu Mazen and there's the bad Abu Mazen <laughs> <laughs> and he, I, I forgot myself you know, because like on one hand, I I know that he knows exactly the joke that I'm making and gets it, but I, I forgot that this could be dangerous on some level. Mm-hmm. And so he's still holding my hand, and he leans in close, and he like for him to lean in close, he, he has to like double over his body. He's so big, and I'm so small. He, he leans in, and he says, "You know, we little people, we can get along just fine." Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you the same story. My mechanic lives uh, in the next town over from mm-hmm. where we are. Yeah. Uh, his name is Sufyan, mm-hmm. also Israeli Arab, uh, Muslim. And I actually found him because everyone in my shul, everyone in my synagogue uses him as their car mechanic. Mm-hmm. So when we got our car and it had some, you know, fixer up and fixing, you know, a couple of stuff needed to be fixed right when we bought it. We bought it used, you know, so like, oh, who has a mechanic? And... Fifteen people in the shul just go, oh, you Sufyan. And we did. It was the same story. I met him. We shook hands. He was inviting me for coffee to his place, which probably wouldn't have ended well. But And he, he said he said the same thing as as as, uh, as I'm leaving. I handed him my car for the weekend to fix. Right? That's his gig. He, he has use of a place on, on 
Saturday because no Israelis open. So he uses the the garage. Um, and I just I handed him my keys. This is normal in Israel. You you would you would do something like this. People don't do this in America. To this mechanic that doesn't have a shop that you've never met before, that is, uh, at least according to the news, your mortal sworn enemy. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a bit strange. Right. It's easy to forget that, actually. Yeah, well, that was the point. And he just says, you know, you and I, if there were more people like you and I, we wouldn't have problems. And I said, you know, I, I, what I said to him was, you know... Well, you don't know me. Right. <laughs> I was like, uh, don't wish for more than one of me. But... But, but it's the same idea. And and yet, when you talk to people who are overseas, it's all like, no, we should kill them all. And again, I'm so talking about both sides. There's no, I'm not, you know. And and it's it's this jarring thing. And, and, and the reason, I, I think, I'm suggesting, the reason that we have this uh, sports fan mentality is because people choose their causes as part of their personalities, you know? So if you're a uh, deep-thinking, um, good-hearted, moral and ethical person, you side with the you side with the underdog. You want to help people. In any ways, we all know that this idea is again, as we touched on uh, in the first segment, this idea of nations and you know why is my people better than your people. Anyways, there's this totality of humanity, and, you know, once again, we'll get a campfire, we'll sing Imagine and Kumbaya, and whatever the third song I'm forgetting is. Uh, and and, and that's, that's one side. And, and then on the other side, you have people who are a bit more religious, you know, and they have certain, uh, a very different sense of morals and ethics. It's not as humanist and a little more godist. And and they believe in you know chosen people, and uh, and yes, some nations are better than others, and 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 things like that, and and it just becomes this this designer personality type way of expressing yourself, which paradoxically gives you your opinions. So I don't think anyone has are you, ever. Are you saying that the choice of political beliefs is ultimately a choice of like which designer personality you're going to wear and you pick it based on some kind of aesthetic sense of you know universalist versus you know ethnic or something like that I'm saying that it's a little odd that politics, for the most part, is binary. Now, in America, this is 100% true. You have two parties. But even in, in Europe, where the, you have these coalition systems, they're still defined as left or right. You have center parties, but they're always center left or center right. It's a very binary system. And, and those binaries have supports in terms of ideology, in terms of philosophy, in terms of, uh, you know, the, they, they create personalities that go into them. It's very rare, as you know, to find a, you know, evangelical leftist. It is. 
it's very rare to find um, a uh, how, how would uh, what would be the opposite? I'm not I'm not sure. But it's I, like the religious Christian leftists would be uni- uh, what what are they called? Uh, Unitarians. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, no. not not just Unitarians, but I I don't know what they would be called, but they're certainly unique. I'll, I'll I'll put it I'll put it I'll, I'll put it like this. My first uh, insight into into what we're describing was my first presidential election. I was really excited. I was 19 years old in in 2008, and I got to vote for the first time. And I didn't really have any political beliefs as a 19-year-old. I grew up in an insular community. I never cared, you know. So I was sitting there and I was like, all right, well, what's this all about? And I couldn't understand why, if I believed in big government, why this had to mean that I also believed that abortion was a right. Mm -hmm. I couldn't understand why, if I wanted less taxes, this also meant that I wanted guns to be widely available. I didn't see what one had to do with the other. And what I noticed was most people had, you know, an issue that they were passionate about. Mm -hmm. We'll take gun rights. And then the rest kind of came from there. And so over time, as they learned the proper position for the uh, group that they had become a part of so they would adopt the up you know the next issue as it came along there's a clustering algorithm essentially yeah absolutely that's 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 a way to put it so when it comes to this and i'm not suggesting by the way that people on the right support israel and people on the left support palestine it's not a right or left thing but it's another binary and it's caught up in many 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 other binaries so when you have your right, but like this is what j street says for example what they say like we're going to be beyond that binary we are pro-israel and we are pro-palestinian and you hear what i'm saying they do say that but obviously that's not what they practice but but that's kind of the point it's almost as if you can't do it. It's such a binary issue. Well, we do it. Because we're here. It's your day-to-day life. This is not a matter of fandom. This is a matter of navigating what you need to do each day. All you have to do is be a normal person. R- well, look, I mean, as uh, we've discussed, this is, a, this is one of the big... Uh, uh, one of the 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 big motivations that we had to to do this podcast was we were sick and tired of this kind of binary uh, approach to information itself. Yeah. And we wanted to be able to discuss things in a way where you don't have to do that. You can just talk through things without coming down in any kind of uh, this or that. It I doesn't want to be ha- self-righteous in my own unique niche. Basically. But, but as you just joked, mm-hmm. it's about being self-righteous. Yeah. And this is something which really does such a good job of 
pushing the right emotional buttons for people that it's become the biggest issue in world you know in, in world politics and geopolitics in in what I was jokingly talking you know that's how we ended off the last segment if you're one of these armchair analysts or you listen to them mm. right but this is what they're all talking about mm-hmm. it's one thing if you have uh, you know I mean look when I lived in, in, in Brooklyn my bartender was a Palestinian from Akko so I was a Jew he was Palestinian this is what we would talk about mm-hmm. amazingly we didn't talk about it much because there wasn't really much to say when I lived in Blacksburg, Virginia, and I was you know, having coffee at my crazy hippie cafe, you know, who sat together at my table? There was, you know, the 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 Jews, including the Israelis who were there, of mm-hmm. course, um, the the Palestinian, the Persian kids, and uh, anybody else who was ethnic, and their names couldn't be pronounced by the white people. Right, but amazingly, it wasn't an issue to them. Because it didn't, he didn't need to light up these emotional, uh, uh, um, what's, 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 you didn't have to express those emotions with this vehicle. Mm-hmm. They were elsewhere. They were real identity markers. Mm-hmm. But when you, you come to the moral and the ethical, so that's where people feel the need to take a stand and to define themselves. And this has, just in terms of narrative, the most wonderful so this summer, I'm in Italy, and for the first time, I'm reading The Fall by Camus, and out of nowhere, he starts to talk about social justice warriors in the middle of the fall. I was shocked. It's part of the personality of the narrator. Yeah. Who is, he's describing his own pathological personality. So... I'd like to read this to you. Sure. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful passage here. Uh, So he writes, this is toward the beginning of the fall. Yeah. Uh, He was an attorney. He says, uh, I had a specialty, noble cases, widows and orphans, as the saying goes. I don't know why, because there are improper widows and ferocious orphans, yet... It was enough for me to sniff the slightest scent of victim on a defendant for me to swing into action. And what action? A real tornado. My heart was on my sleeve. You would really have thought that justice slept with me every night. I am sure you would have admired the rightness of my tone, the appropriateness of my emotion, the persuasion and warmth the restrained indignation of my speeches before the court. Nature favored me as to my physique, and the noble attitude comes effortless, effortlessly. Furthermore, I was buoyed up by two sincere feelings, the satisfaction of being on the right side of the bar, and an instinctive scorn for judges in general. So there's two things from what you just read that, that jump out at me and they grab me. The first one is, if Camus was writing this today, there would only be one thing different. And he would just sort of said the right side of history. Instead yeah. of the right side of the bar. <laughs> That's right. And the second one, which is not as uh, pithy. And it's, it's amazing. It's so contemporary. It's, it's it's unbelievable. The, the, the second thing, which was just really so uh, uh, powerful, is the, 
this line of thought is literally what we were describing, and it's on both sides. It was enough for me to sniff the slightest scent of victim on someone, mm-hmm. in his case, defendant. And that's all it takes for me to swing into action. My heart was on my sleeve. Mm-hmm. Both sides lay claim to a certain sense of victim. Both sides are people who sense that victimhood and wish to make it right. This is what's correct. This is what's right. This is moral. This is ethical. This is this. This is that. And their heart is on their sleeve. A claim to being a victim is what justifies your political position. So that's something. That that sentence right there is becoming more and more true. It wasn't always. Mm. Politics really used to be about finding answers to problems. Nothing really more than that. Or to having a lot of power. Well, they went together because finding the answer to the problem and the power to then make that problem go away kind of went hand in hand. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, you know, in, in a simple example, power in America used to be concentrated in Congress Mm -hmm. and over time became concentrated in the office of the president. And getting things done used to happen in Congress. And today it happens in the office of the president. To step back for a half a second, I I really wanted to add a seventh and eighth uh, uh, question to our little animated or anime quiz, which was simply Donald Trump becomes president because it's both true and it also happened in The Simpsons in the 90s. Yeah. Um, But I wound up going on a Rick and Morty tier, so I left it out. But, But in that sense, Donald Trump and Barack Obama before him and George Bush before them, and this really stretches as far back as LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, when he put a war in Vietnam that never went to Congress for a vote. Mm. That was the beginning, in my opinion. I'm sure this you, people will find examples from, from, from before. Other people will point out that it's not necessarily so true. What, but as a, as a rough benchmark, mm-hmm. that was where that shift started. And that's also where the shift went from let's concentrate on getting things done to... The singular was about a person, and and it became that way as well. Politics and identity started to mix in ways that are unique to when you're discussing an individual as opposed to discussing a method for making things happen. I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. Are you saying that beginning approximately with LBJ's executive enacted war in Vietnam there's a mixing of politics and identity that wasn't there before sure sure the overwhelming no 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 Mm -hmm. no allow me to explain okay then yell at me no 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 to be fair but but I have counter examples (laughs) great but for the first time if you were 19 years old Mm -hmm. in 1968 I wasn't. Right. That was the if. If you were 19 years old in 1968, one man made a decision 
on his own that made you do something on your own that affected you. And suddenly you have this thing of not we as a people have a mechanism for enacting, executing, executive, finding these solutions. You have, if uh, he gets to choose, uh, what about me? I'm not buying it. Oh, that is a valuable point. If the, if, if our leader doesn't capture it, but if, if the Malchut, if the representative of America can go out as an individual and make this decision, as opposed to, you know, rallying Congress and the, you know, all the representatives of the people and gathering mm -hmm. support and, you know, if he can do that, then it seems to be a personal thing. On some exactly. Level. And then why can't I also exercise my individual rights and exactly. executive power to... And this goes... myself otherwise. Well, this ends up mm. in what today we call identity politics. But the truth is, is really just a repetitive name. Because at this point, identity and politics, politics are the same. Mm. I am... X and therefore it's not even a therefore it's just that that's what X is mm -hmm. and then you wind up with weird things like I believe in small government and therefore I believe in uh, you know making abortions illegal and I believe that you should allow prayer in public schools maybe you're not religious but that's not the point because it isn't the point and when it comes to an issue like this one, that's where it starts to press these buttons. Do you think the the identity of identity and politics is also what drives the the tight clustering of issues that don't seem to have anything to do with each other necessarily? A hundred percent. Because it becomes part of the same designer personality mm -hmm. that that we're describing. So I'm not I'm not suggesting the same way that that you know pointing out uh, the 60s you know it just happens to coincide that you have the the counterculture explosion and the rise of this you know uber individuality um that corresponds with the Vietnam War I'm not pretending it's a causative thing but it is interesting that they arose at the same time mm -hmm. so whatever is percolating in society in, in this period of time, these are the issues and these are two ways that they're expressed. And ultimately, they continue moving along these paths and carving these channels and you wind up where we are today. So I'm not pretending, you know, somebody's going to leave us feed, come back with feedback and be like, I thought your point of saying that the LBJ is sending troops to Vietnam is why we have uh, social justice warriors. Well, that's just stupid. I agree with you because <laughs> it isn't what I'm saying. Because there's not a causal connection. Right. But they're correlative. They're manifesting something exactly deep and underlying. So these the what? You know the the zeitgeist. Yeah. Or some other German term. You know, zeitgeist is, is the right thing. I they're... know, but you know, Dasein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, German has that wonderful quality of it makes any uh, for it just you know it just makes things sound smarter. And also way more violent, but smarter. 
Um, so then others fly chassis to be brass. I don't think I quoted that correctly. I have no idea what you said, but I'm in awe by your brilliance. And I'm afraid. All flesh will be as grass. You know, it's from Yeshayah, but in German. Ah. It's, it's in Brahms' Requiem. <laughs> How nice. So, so, so the point is, you have these designer personalities... And, and, and people don't sit there. You don't have 15-year-olds that are sitting there saying, you know, I want to be uh, a social justice warrior. I want to be yeah, a totally. young conservative. I don't think that's how it, is. it starts. I think it starts that something comes up in their life. It's the first political issue that, that they come across. Look, they have to choose a pronoun. Or not. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the college student that uh, in his school was told that he can choose any pronoun he wants, so he went with your highness. Hmm. And they had to call him that. Good call. Yeah. And that guy, is, that he, he's... Wins. He definitely wins. Uh, anybody who can find a cynical way of making a point wins, in my opinion, anyway. But... The the thing is, so look, let's say you're 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 this kid and you're growing up in some small town and there's this big question, um, should we take this park and turn it into a factory? No. Fine. If that's your reaction. So look, you're sitting there saying I need a summer job, let's say. And then you want the factory. And then you find that the people who want the factory are these, you know, free market capitalists that believe in da da da, and those become your your friends and your partners in this thing, mm -hmm. and you learn some more of the underpinnings of why we should have this factory here. And you read uh, Hayek. Eventually, you wind up reading Ayn Rand, and <sighs> you know, screaming that we should allow meth labs uh, to be run privately. Um, because, you know, that's, Atlas didn't shrug yet. And, or, same town, your next door neighbor, doesn't need a summer job. And they, they, they like the park. That's where they do their uh, skateboarding. That's where they do their yoga. That's where, I don't know, that, that's where they take their afternoon nap when they cut math class. Yoga's so, good, right? So yoga, and then well, we all I have realize to be you're gonna wind and... up right. So that's why I gave other examples besides yoga. The point is, they said I don't want this, and then who's gonna be with them? It's gonna be the environmentalists, and it's gonna be the you know. So those are the people that think, and they start learning a little bit more about why we should be doing this. And then you know, after all, big business is very bad, and 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 things like that. And before you know it, these people are thirty years old, and they have. These, they've never actually once thought about anything other than, do I want a factory or a park? But this is where it ends up. Mm -hmm. and, and in a weird way, we've lost the ability to find nuance, to find, um, just to keep issues in, in you know, for what they are. Yeah, this is one of the ways in which is getting out there and traveling and experiencing different things widens people's perspectives in a radical way. So when, um, so two friends who also 
put out. So Matthew Mausner, uh, who has the Left in podcast, coming from the other mm-hmm. side of the political spectrum, um, and uh, Adam Elia Berkowitz, who uh, writes frequently for uh, what's it called Israel News, I think, um, and also will do uh, videos sometimes. Um, the three of us were studying together in uh, Bata and Yeshiva. And uh, individually, they made the point to me that when they came to Israel, they were shocked to find that the political issues here aligned differently than in America. That the environmentalists were back to land people who were religious conservatives because they care about the land. Sure, and the guys the wanting to build a factory were leftists who were looking to the find full employment. Exactly. <laughs> leftists like, what's going on here? <laughs> this doesn't fit into my left-right so, dichotomy. So what I would say is, that's true to a point. It's only if somebody approaches that travel with enough of an open mind that they would see... Oh, that's true. Something that doesn't fit yeah, and then true. question it. That's true. There are a lot of people who see things that don't fit and don't question them. They just shrug them off as, you know, well, whatever. So this is going to be very um, anticlimactic and also... No, give me a climax. Definitely not. <sighs> but it's also going to be a feature... Of our conversations, I'm sure. We're not driving at any My particular point. My conversations will be climactic. <laughs> but ours. I don't think we're driving at any particular point, And that's exactly the... You know, if there is a point, is that there is no point. Is that if you look at things with enough of an open perspective, you'll discover that the way you thought they were may not necessarily be what they are. And rather than questions being about finding answers but everybody knows that that's that's what drives so many talking heads on youtube you know it's not what you thought it is it's actually different it's how i say it is but that's what i'm saying so we're not saying how we say it is because the truth is i can't tell you what i say it is but if we don't know why would anybody listen to us well for those of you who are listening I'm not going to tell you why you should listen to us, but I hope, and I, I think there's a really big space for this and, and a need for this, to be able to have conversations that are not excuses to hand over uh, perspectives, but rather conversations that give people another tool in finding their own. We are the podcast where ideology comes to die. Well, that's the name, and and this serves as a bit of a introduction for what we're what we're hoping to, not even accomplish, but just to do. the The title is first die, in the sense of whatever your givens are, let's get rid of them. First die, then approach life. And as we go on in the coming weeks, this is going to be. Uh, both a bug and a feature in what we're doing and we hope to have you along for the ride so we're going to end this segment here and we'll be back after one last commercial message another commercial message another commercial message 
Money makes the world go round. Even fake money. Even fake commercials. We'll be back. What the hell is Israel? It's just something Rick starts talking about when he's blackout drunk. What? In what, what, in what way? Like, what's my point? In a way that has no point? You just babble about defense budgets in the United Nations and then you pass out. So, to be clear, I sometimes reference the geopolitical complexities of the topic, which is not the same as going to an anti-Semitic place. I have no stake in this. I don't either. I'm, I'm just saying, if anything, the drunk version of me is probably so supportive of Israel, he wants what's best for it. And Amen. So, we're I'm back with this. the you do you. Ask a Jew segment. <laughs> well, we're back with the questions from our audience segment, but in this uh, particular instance, the questions were chosen uh, by a non-member of the tribe for us, who are members of the tribe. And so we are jokingly calling this particular one the Ask the Jew segment. Sean McGaskill. Hey, Sean. Hey, Sean. Sean uh, was an early listener to this podcast and piloted it not only on himself, but also, get this, on his boss on a long drive. Which is a pretty boss move. That is a boss and a ballsy move. So, with uh, great respect for Sean, uh, I would like to take at least one of his questions. Let's go for it. Okay. So, let's start with favorite ethnic foods. Ooh. Ooh, that's a good one. I think he means Jewish ethnic foods. Probably. So the funny thing is, is I don't really like any of our ethnic foods. Um, you know, I, I had some growing up. That was the way mom cooked and everything. But I don't, I don't know. I can't say I, at this point. What about like, your wife's ethnic foods? So that's true. I, uh, I am what I call partially intermarried. Uh, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. I'm married to a Sephardic Jew. And the ethnic foods are... French-Moroccan from Lakewood, New Jersey. Those of you who get why that's doubly funny, good on you. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so they have different ethnic foods. And, and interestingly, uh, the, first of all, they're much spicier, which is, <laughs> which is great. Uh, Ashkenazic ethnic foods are generally really heavy... Um, a lot of oil, a lot of frying, a lot of um, meat and chicken heavy schmaltz. Yeah, and y- Yiddish is a is a schmaltz isn't just a thing you do in entertainment. It's actually something that Jews eat. Look, my father's favorite food, if one could call it food, is a Yiddish dish called gribnitz. And it's fried chicken skin. It was a, I don't want to say delicacy, but it was like a treat for the kids. It's crunchy, and it was fried, and, you know, it's the kind of thing that kind of makes my skin crawl at this point. But, um, I don't know, if I, if, I, if I had to pick one, if I had to pick one, um... I mean, it would set off a firestorm, because I'd probably go with, like, falafel, which is not really, you know, oh my god, it's a Jewish ethnic, it's an Arab food, cultural appropriation, blah. 
But I don't know. I, I'd say that would be mine. How about you? Are you serious? Yeah. I don't I don't like our ethnic food. I don't, I don't like it. Okay. It's either way too heavy okay. or it's T- just weird. Tui has danced around this question long enough. I'm being serious. I, I don't like our ethnic food. That's not dancing. That's sledgehammering. It's bad. He's shooting himself in the foot. Well, in the stomach, but yeah. Okay, so. (laughs) Wait, does chicken soup count? Sure, chicken soup counts. Fine, then my favorite ethnic food, Jewish ethnic food, is chicken soup. I love a good chicken soup. We prepare it in a pressure cooker, and we cook it overnight, and we get all the chicken out of the chicken in the soup. I've had it. Tzvi and his wife make some serious chicken soup. It's like it has therapeutic properties. Um, it uh, it's been known to to have a little bit of some psychedelic properties as well. And raise the dead. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll go with my proprietary chicken soup as my favorite ethnic food. What's okay. yours? So I I've only had this twice, but it made such a powerful impression on me. I have to say that the most awe-inspiring Jewish ethnic food for me is Shaw. Okay, so... (laughs) Do you want to describe that? I'm about to describe that. (laughs) Full disclosure. Pacha is a Eastern European... It's not just an exclamation. (laughs) (laughs) It it is the exclamation that you will probably... uh, You make that sound when you eat it. Right, after your first bite... Um, and a shot of vodka, which is generally meant along with it. It has to, but for tolerance purposes, pcha is basically if you take the hooves of a cow of a cow and you boil them down to jelly. That's it. That's and then you let it harden a little bit. That's pcha. I had it once. Um, I was twelve years old. And I was at uh, a friend's house for the Sabbath, for Shabbat. And his parents served it as like a delicacy. And they were going on about how good it is. And, and they bring it out. And it's like, you know how you take jello out of the mold and it, it wiggles a bit? And you know how instinctively you don't want to eat food that wiggles? <laughs> yeah. So I was 12 and the food was wiggling. And I was obviously visibly put off by it because his mother was kept on telling me no 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 no, you got to try it you at least have to try it just try it so we all guilted another friend who was there at the meal to be the guinea pig and he took one little tiny nibble you know and immediately pulled his tie up to his mouth and jumped back you know sending his seat flying into the wall and ran off towards the kitchen to spit it out and I kind of looked at them with a smile and said, no thanks. But they were very insistent, so I tried it. <laughs> and and I'm proud, even after that, and, and I'm proud to say the following. One, I did swallow it. And it was delicious. Mutti, if you're listening, I swallowed it. Okay, so I've got one up on you. And the second thing I'm proud to say is I've never, ever touched it again. That you could list this as your favorite 
is mind-boggling. It's amazing. It's just bad. Maybe I've just had really high-grade pacha. Well, like, only the finest hooves went into making this pacha? I don't know. It was it was beautiful. It was totally transparent. It was like peering into a crystal in which you... Well, like, pure fat, or whatever it is. It was gelatin. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary is the first word I would use to describe Pacha, but the second one would be bad. Okay. So At any rate. Here's my other favorite. <clears throat> Maybe my real favorite. Jewish ethnic that, that you've had more than once, yeah. <laughs> that, I, that I have almost weekly. Hmm. And that would be a fantastic kind of bread, which I believe is from uh, the Yemenite community, called lahouch. And it is a flat... Wait, wait, wait. Can you spell that? In which language? We'll go with English. Okay, so lahouch, I would spell L A. C-H-A-C-H. Okay. Luchach. Yeah. <laughs> so Luchach, the hoch, is a, is a flatbread, which is spongy. And if you've ever had, um, like, Ethiopian anjara, <laughs> it's, it's actually a lot like that, except it's weed as opposed to... Um, uh, What's the grain that they, they use in Ethiopia? Teff? No idea. But it's also a great, great bread, but, um, but I prefer lahoch. I've never had it. Recommend it highly. You'll have to get me some. I, I could do that. You could have Mabad Ksamim or Super Moshapa. Really? Yeah, yeah, sure. Cool. And um, I recommend doing it with, a, with an, like an egg on top. Or you All can, right. you know, wrap up your meat in it or whatever you want. We'll, uh, we'll get back to you with tasting notes when I, get a, when I get some. I think we can do another question. You want another question? Another question. Do you want to you take the communist question? Mm. It's, it's kind of heavy. Yeah, I don't know if we have time for it. We can do like an abridged version, but if there's something we can give like a, a really full answer to. So the truth is we were thinking about this earlier. And uh, the question was, why are so many Jews communists? And to just summarize quickly uh, what we were thinking about, um, Tzvi suggested that it has, the ideology has a messianic quality to it. So if you're a people with a strongly ingrained belief in ultimate redemption, um, and of course Marx came from this himself, um, it, it's an idea that, that could easily grab you. Um, and then uh, there was another suggestion, which was that um, this might have been an ideology that allowed Jews who were in relatively isolated communities entrance into the international community, and it was an international ideology. Well, I mean, they literally called their meeting the International. Yeah. And, um, and then the, but there's also some feedback mechanism between that, too, because sure. 
Like if you see that you can, you could adopt this in order to belong, and if you have a sense that you belong there, then you could adopt this, and you know, so just goes around and around, which I guess really leaves us with the strange phenomenon of Bernie Sanders. Go on. I think that it would Bernie Sanders is um, kind of funny in a way. Um, <laughs> yeah. And if he became president, that would be so bad for the Jews. Um, that's been suggested. That's that's definitely something that's been suggested because as much as Bernie doesn't really see himself as a Jew. Um, other people would. Um, but this is, this is something that really, I think we can go on for, for like a real, you know, longer segment in terms of the very odd differences between how Jews see themselves and how they're seen and how their feedback loops between those two and how sometimes they diverge quite wildly. Um, but at least, you know, on one foot. As, as we say, uh, it would be something which would give a lot of ammunition to a lot of people that don't like us and would create one of those fun situations where whatever Bernie does as an individual would be uh, projected onto um, the Jews as a whole, which is doubly funny because Bernie doesn't necessarily see himself as part of that whole to begin with. In contrast, I, I have davened with uh, Joseph Lieberman. Really? Yeah, he has um, some fa family connection to the Italian Jewish community. And his name is Lieberman. His name is Lieberman. Um, mm. I think maybe, uh, maybe his wife's parents were in a DP camp after the war in Rome. Mm. thereabouts and uh so frequently when he's in israel i guess uh he will daven at the italian synagogue in the center of town and you know my wife being italian we used to be there all the time so cool yeah that's pretty cool listen when when he was on the as a vice president he was on a presidential ticket um that was a point that was made over and over again that, you know, in a weird way, it would be amazing. You have a Jew in the White House and all. And on, and, on, on, and he was a traditional, if not religious Jew. He saw himself as a Jew. It was definitive. Um, but at the same time, people within the Jewish community were pointing out that this would have very, very, very large and potentially disastrous ramifications um, for our community. Yeah, as a whole, we're sort of sort of shielded from that with uh, um, Jared and Ivanka because of the the scandal of Trump. Like there's just it's it's true. When 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 <laughs> when it was announced that how much uh, how much influence that Jared and Ivanka Kushner um, wielded in the White House, there's a lot of and we don't really have to say how much pushback there was because. Um, Anyone can open uh, any one of the, uh, let's call them far-right uh, opinion sphere websites 
and see exactly how how that played out. Um, Does the alt right feel betrayed by Trump that he would have Jews like that high up in his administration? Many did. Many many did. Many never really got on the Trump train to begin with because they said he can't really be one of them if his daughter, you know, he let his daughter convert. Hmm. That's the ultimate, uh, you know, that was the ultimate, you're, you're not one of us if you're leaving it. Which I have to is, say I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. If 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 that you know we we look we have something similar in terms of how we uh, how we see who's part of the the Jewish enterprise and who is not. Um, but uh, it 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 had ramifications in in the alt right world. But uh, that's you always you always have these uh, manifestations of Joseph. You know, the the king's Jew, the court Jew, you know, Mishnah Lamelech, the yeah, the Jewish viceroy. Yeah, that's the, that's as literally as old. That's as old as history itself. Um, but uh, yeah, but we're already sailing this boat out of the the questions waters. I guess. I think Sean will appreciate it. Oh, totally. You know, but uh, that's that's probably a good place to. Kind of say, that's the best we can do in answering such a question. So, if you'd like to feed our digression machine, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at holymadnesstheshow at gmail.com. Thanks. Signing out.